I also want to read for us this morning from Romans, the 12th chapter, the first two verses. Here again, God's Word. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would send your spirit among us to be our teacher. This we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Some of you may know the story of Rosaria Butterfield, and if you don't, I would encourage you to get to know her story. Rosaria was a professor at Syracuse University, and she was a lesbian. Uh, In fact, she was a leader in feminist theory, in queer theory, and in postmodern literary theory. She was a self-described tenured radical Uh, She was very politically involved in the LGBT movement. And then something happened. She met Jesus. Well, actually, she met a pastor first, and then she met Jesus. Uh, But she met a pastor, Pastor Ken Wilson and his wife. And uh, Pastor Wilson sought out a friendship with Rosaria, uh, got to know her. And as their friendship grew... Rosaria realized that a lot of her preconceptions about Christians and about the Christian faith were simply mistaken. Here was a pastor of all people who had taken a genuine interest in her, a lesbian. And instead of immediately inviting her to church, he invited her to dinner. And he showed her hospitality and he showed her kindness. And over time, Rosaria began to wonder, what if this gospel is true? But it was difficult for her because she was so entrenched in the gay community. She began reading the Bible to try to figure things out. But her gay friends uh, were troubled by this. They noticed she was changing. This is how she describes it. She says, my friends from the gay community were on alert. One friend told me point blank, all this Bible reading was changing me. Finally, I said to her, What would you say if I told you I'm beginning to believe Jesus is real and that we're all in big trouble? Her friend said, Rosaria, I was in the Presbyterian church for 15 years. During that time, I prayed that Jesus would heal me. He didn't, but maybe he'll heal you. The next day, Rosaria found two big boxes of books on her front porch. Her friend had dropped off all of her old theology books. Rosaria picked up the copy of Calvin's Institutes, thumbed through it, and saw in the margin in her friend's handwriting, watch out for Romans 1. There's a lot more to Rosaria's story than that. I'd encourage you to pick up her book and read it, uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, Just to tell you how the story ends, actually it's really not over. She's continuing to, to speak and write about these things. But today she is a pastor's wife and a homeschooling mom. Uh, in North Carolina. Uh, Certainly, Rosaria's friend was right about Romans 1. That passage proved to be crucial to Rosaria's conversion out of a lesbian lifestyle uh, to Christ. And I think it is a crucial passage if we want to understand what is happening in our culture today. 
with the recent Obergefell decision uh, from the Supreme Court making same-sex marriage the law of the land, you could say the sexual revolution uh, has come full circle. Uh, the sexual revolution has completed its work of virtually deconstructing the family. Uh, the sexual revolution has already had, and I think will continue to have, horrendous results in our culture. Uh, I think only Christians, I think only Christians can give an account for why marriage matters. I think only Christians can really give an account for why the family is so critical to human flourishing. But even non-Christians benefit when a society encourages the biblical family model. And indeed, everybody in a society suffers when that culture does not adhere to the biblical model. The wreckage of the sexual revolution continues to pile up. And churches need to be ready to take in refugees from the sexual revolution. We need to be ready to bandage them up and help them heal. Of course, it's very hard to do because some people find the church's teaching on marriage and family to be offensive. I don't think this should stop us. If offending people is always wrong, then Jesus was the chief of sinners. Uh, he managed to offend everybody along the way. Listen to what Rosaria Butterfield has to say about this. Remember, this is a woman who went from lesbianism to being a faithful Christian now. She says the idea that a church cannot be welcoming without being gay-affirming on membership issues, runs exactly counter to my experience. Welcoming people to sin and twisting the meaning and purpose of church membership in the process does not welcome anyone to Christ. When my gay-affirming friends ask me why I do not support gay marriage, I tell them that Christians are called to be good neighbors, and good neighbors never put a stumbling block between a fellow image-bearer and the God who made us. Now, having said that, uh, I don't want you to think of today's sermon merely as a culture wars sermon. I do think there's a culture war, and I do think we're called to fight in it, and I do think we need to strategize about the most effective tactics we can use in reaching the culture with our message. I think we need to put some time and effort into figuring out how to speak winsomely and effectively to the public square. And the things I say in this sermon would probably not be the same kind of things I would say uh, if I were to meet uh, a practicing homosexual and have a conversation with him. If Paul were to encounter a homosexual, practicing homosexual, I don't think he would have just rattled off exactly what he says in Romans chapter 1. I think the message would have looked a little bit different. But what Romans 1 does for us is it helps us understand what's going on in our world. We need to understand what's going on all around us so that we can participate in and engage in our culture faithfully. Uh, we have a vested interest in what happens in the public square, especially on these issues of sex and family and marriage. Sexual ethics issues are always justice issues, and we care about public justice. Uh, let me tell you what I mean here, give you an example of what I mean here. When the sexual revolution, as it's come to be known, first arose in the 1960s, what was the slogan everybody used that you saw spray-painted on bridges and on walls? It was the slogan, make love, not war. The idea was if we could just get enough people to oppose the war in Vietnam, we'll end the senseless killing of innocent people over there on the other side of the world, and if we could just do away with all sexual rules, then we'll have paradise restored. We will replace bloodshed with sexual freedom. Well, the sexual revolution did indeed catch on. 
Uh, eventually, the counterculture became the mainstream culture. And now we can ask a generation later, how has it worked out? Well, a generation later, a generation into the sexual revolution, the make love, not war revolution, we have shed the blood of over 50 million innocent babies, all in the name of free love. That's more deaths than all our other wars and revolutions put together. See, in order to make the sexual revolution work, we actually had to declare war on the unborn. That's the only way it could work, would be to declare war on the unborn. We also had to declare war on marriage. Divorce rates skyrocketed after the sexual revolution began. So there was nothing free about free love. It's come at great, great cost, great, great cost to our society's well-being. As a church, we have to be concerned about that kind of thing. We care about the common good. We love our neighbors. We want what's best for everyone. But at the same time, as we engage these issues in our culture, we have to guard against the tendency of the culture wars to politicize every issue. The church is not a voting bloc or a constituency trying to regain lost market share. Indeed, the church is an alternative kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And we fight this war ultimately with different weapons, not with the political weapons of the world, but with our own set of political weapons, prayer, the preaching of the gospel, the discipline of the church, the weapons that Christ has given to us. I want you to understand, what happens politically is not the most important thing for us. The church can survive marginalization. The church can survive persecution. The church can survive taxation. What the church cannot survive is compromise and confusion over these issues. What the church cannot do is simply surrender and walk away from the fight. We can't surrender to the culture on these issues. So think of these recent events as a kind of stress test for the church to gauge our health. It's in moments like these that Christ's true followers are manifest. And I think one of the key ways the church distinguishes herself from the world is with her sexual convictions and practices. I said last week that one chink in our armor is the way we have lacked compassion for sexual sinners, particularly homosexuals, practicing homosexuals. We uh, have used slurs. We have been mean-spirited in our interactions with gays. We have treated them like untouchables rather than treating them with dignity and fellow image bearers. This ought not to be. But the other chink in our armor as we go to fight this battle is our own lack of sexual virtue and sexual integrity inside the church. In far too many ways, the church looks just like the world in this area. Think about Paul's words from Romans 12 that I read for us just a moment ago. Paul says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 1 talks about how our minds are darkened by sin and idolatry. Romans 12 says our minds can be renewed by God's mercy. That's what we need. Mind renewal. So we can't be conformed to the ways of the world. We have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to push back against the world. I love how Flannery O'Connor put this. Flannery O'Connor once said, push 
back. She said the church has to push back against the world just as hard as the world presses against us. It's time for the church to push back. See, if we lose ourselves to the world on these issues of sex and marriage, we will lose our bearings completely. I'll just put it to you this way. It is impossible to get the gospel... Well, let me put it this way. It is impossible to get marriage wrong and still get the gospel right. Uh, In the long run, you just can't be wrong on marriage and still be right on the gospel. Marriage and the gospel are too inextricably linked to one another. And I want to tell you, if you're a a member or regular attender here at TPC, uh, I want you to know and I want you to be encouraged by the fact that you are in a church where the leadership is firmly and unwaveringly committed to what Scripture teaches on these issues. By the grace of God, we will take our stand on Scripture and we will not be budged. So what I want to do in this sermon this morning is I want to use Romans chapter 1 as a kind of lens, as a lens through which we can look to see what's going on in our culture. Uh, Romans 1 is a lens that I think will bring into focus a lot of things going on uh, around us in our culture. Uh, To get into this text, I think we need to see the basic contours of this passage. I'm not going to go through this passage in great detail, verse by verse. Perhaps we can do that some other time. But I want to hit on some of the key points as they relate to these issues in our culture. Uh, This section in Romans, really you could say this about the whole book of Romans, but particularly this section is saturated with the Old Testament. Uh, In particular, there are a number of allusions to and echoes of the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. In fact, really you could say this part of Romans 1 is a kind of running commentary on Genesis 1 through 3. Paul begins where Genesis begins with creation. Paul says God is the creator and God has made himself known through the creation. Uh, And actually, the way Paul words it, he's probably not thinking of creation simply as a past event, something God did in the past, but also the way God is present in his creation and active in, in his creation throughout history right down to the present moment. How God upholds and rules and sustains and directs his creation. Words from Genesis chapter 1 are peppered throughout this passage. Image and likeness show up. There is a list of animals that follows the creation sequence from Genesis chapter 1 and uses the same categories uh, to describe the animals. Paul here says that God's creation is revelatory, and so he makes the point that all men know. All men know God. Intuitively and inescapably, men know not just that there's a higher power or a supreme being. All men know the true God. Because every fact in the universe has his fingerprints all over it. Every fact in the universe has his signature on it. You can see it plainly. Just as an artist reveals himself in what he paints or draws or sculpts or writes, So the divine artist reveals himself in his artwork, the creation. The result is all men inescapably know God. You can't not know the true and living God. But then Paul gives us also here the anatomy of sin. And obviously here Genesis 3 is 
the subtext. He takes us back to Adam, Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. And he shows us how they polluted the river of history so that everyone living downstream from them is affected by their sin. Everyone inherits their sinfulness. Everybody, inherit, everybody inherits what we call original sin. The guilt and depravity that sprang from their rebellion in the garden. Sin is like a corrosive acid that eats away at and kills everything it touches. And it's like Adam and Eve just took a big vat of that acid and poured it over the rest of the human race. And so Paul says, yes, all men know the Creator. And because they all know the Creator, they are without excuse if they fail to thank Him and glorify Him. But because we are all sinners, because we inherit depravity from our father Adam, now all men have a tendency to suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. We take that truth that we know and we seek to suppress it, to hold it down. Adam and Eve were the first to fail to thank and glorify God. But in a way, their sin becomes the paradigm for every sin since then. See, the way it was set up in the beginning, Adam and Eve were supposed to serve God. And the animal creation was supposed to serve Adam and Eve. That was the original pattern, the original hierarchy. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve invert that word. Eve obeys the word of an animal, the serpent, instead of the word of God. And so instead of serving God, humans began to worship idols from the lower creation. Eve thought the forbidden fruit would make her wise. Instead, she becomes a fool. Adam and Eve exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Paul talks about this pattern. It's a pattern that goes back to the garden. Adam and Eve exchanged the truth of God for a lie, the serpent's lie. Instead of worshiping and serving the Creator, they worship and serve the creature. And so they became darkened. They confused the creature with the Creator. Their thinking was made futile. Their hearts were darkened. And that's the story of the human race. Ever since Adam and Eve, what are we? We are fools and idolaters. We have exchanged the true God for an idol and exchanged genuine humanness for a distorted version of human. What is the result of this rebellion? The creation is thrown into moral and spiritual chaos and God pours out His wrath upon all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's, that's how Paul opens this section. He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, Paul certainly knew that God would unleash His wrath on Judgment Day at the end of history. But Paul indicates that even now, God's wrath is at work in history, punishing men for their sins. What is God's wrath? God's wrath is the reflex of His holiness to sin. God is wrathful precisely because He is loving. Because He is so loving, He gets angry. He becomes outraged at anything that would disfigure or mar or distort His beloved creation. God's wrath is a reflex of His holiness and His love. When men become idolaters, and fools, what happens? They become subhuman in a way. They start to image beasts more than they image God. Their hearts and minds are dark and they dishonor their bodies. They do things that are shameful and unnatural. 
Paul says this is the way idolatrous civilizations go. Eventually, idolatrous civilizations turn to homosexuality. And Paul says in verses 26 and 27, this is contrary to nature. Let's stop there. We've been kind of racing through this. Let's stop here and talk about this for just a minute. What does Paul mean by contrary to nature? What does he mean by nature? It's tricky. This is tricky because that word nature is used a lot of different ways in Scripture. And then, of course, it's also been a lot of, used a lot of different ways in the history of philosophy. We're not concerned about any of those other meanings. All we're concerned about is what it means here in Romans 1. Why would Paul say that homosexual practice is against nature? Why not simply say it's against the law and then quote from the book of Leviticus? Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 deal with this. Actually, Paul does allude to Leviticus in this context in Romans chapter 1. So Torah is on his mind. Torah is never very far from the mind of Paul. But Paul uses that category of nature. Why? I think it's because he wants to look at this sexual sin from a particular angle, in a particular light. He wants us to know that God's wrath is not arbitrary. It's not arbitrarily aimed at people who have broken arbitrary laws. There's something inherently wrong and defective with this kind of practice. I actually think it's quite similar to what Jesus does in Mark chapter 10 when the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce. And to answer them, Jesus bypasses the Torah, the law, and he goes straight back to the creation account in Genesis. And he says, from the beginning of the creation. See, that's kind of similar to the language in Romans 1.20. Since the creation of the world. Jesus says, from the beginning of the creation, it was... Not so. In other words, to to answer a question about marriage, Jesus goes back to God's original creation intention. God's original design for the creation. You could say He goes back to nature, to the nature of things, the way God made the world. And I think that's how Paul is using the term here. By nature, Paul means God designed the world to work a certain way. The creation has an architecture to it. It has a design and a structure and an order. And Paul is saying here that homosexual practice is contrary to that design. God has revealed a plan for sexuality in the Scriptures. He has embedded that plan in the order of creation. This is the way the world was designed to work. Scripture and nature, Scripture and the creation fit together. Which means living in accord with Scripture is really living in accord with nature, which is really living in accord with your design. It's the way God made you to live. It's the truly human life. Homosexual practice is contrary to that design. So it's unlawful and it's unnatural. Two ways of getting at the same thing. Obviously, then, Paul's point is that we should conform our lives to the way God made the world to work. We should live in accord with the way things are. We should live in accord with reality as God has defined it. Again, there is this inherent structure the divine architect has embedded in his world. We see it spelled out for us in Scripture. We should seek to live in accord with it. Think about it in, in terms of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, the creation is initially formless. Over six days, 
God forms it. He gives the world form. He gives it shape. And it is a purposeful shape. It's a design. And so nature is not a blank slate. We can't form it however we want. God has given it form. There's a certain givenness to the world that we must respect. This is so important because I think this is precisely where we have to do battle with our culture. We are involved in a clash of worldviews. Now, the good news is that in this clash of worldviews, we have God on our side and we have nature on our side. We have God on our side and we have reality on our side, which is always good when you're going into a war to have God and reality on your side. But we still need to understand how this works, how this is unfolding in our culture. I'm going to greatly oversimplify here, so forgive me for that. Uh, But I I want to make this point to you. What's the dominant worldview in our day? Not necessarily numerically, but influentially. What's the dominant worldview in our day? At least in terms of public policy. It's what you could call secularism based on evolution. What evolution did is it gave people uh, an excuse for suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, for saying, well, now we don't need God, we don't need to appeal to God in order to account for the origin of the universe. Again, I'm oversimplifying, but let me put it this way. Evolution says that given enough time and chance, a hydrogen atom can become absolutely anything. Hydrogen exploded out of the Big Bang and over time and by chance it became everything that you see around you right now. I know that's not the most scientific way to tell the evolutionary story, uh, but it's kind of a children's version, I suppose. But you get the point, okay? Now, given that story, given that account of the universe, you can see that there really is no nature at all in Paul's sense of the term. There's no structure or order. Anything can become anything. You know what this is? This, this, this evolutionary, secular view? It's really just the ancient paganism revived. This is what the ancient pagans thought about reality as well. There's no structure or order or design there. It's a chaotic world governed by chance in which anything can turn into anything. The advantage that we have over the ancients is now we have technology to kind of keep fooling ourselves about this. We have the technology that makes us think we really can shape the world in our own way. And so the world is like Plato in our hands. And so if a man feels that he was born with the wrong body type, he actually thinks he's a woman. So you've got a man who wants to become a woman. If Bruce wants to become Caitlin. Well, gender is just Plato. And with enough chemicals and enough surgeries, we can reshape it. We can reform it. If two men want to marry, well, marriage has no set order, no fixed design, no structure to it. It's just a human convention, a a human construct. We formed it. And so like Plato, we'll just reshape it however we want. We'll reshape it to suit our desires. On this view, reality is endlessly malleable. Everything is in flux. Reality is liquid. And we get to decide the shape of the container. That's why I hear, I haven't checked to see if this is true, uh, but I've heard, you know, Facebook now has 56 different gender options. 
you can choose from. You can pour yourself into any shape, gender, container you want. That's just the world we live in. Now, Scripture speaks to these things. It speaks to all of these things. For example, you want to take the, 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 the transgender issue. Leviticus, uh, the book of Leviticus forbids castration, the mutilation uh, of, of a person. Deuteronomy 22 forbids a man's wearing of women's clothing. And so I think we can say with a great deal of certainty, the law forbids any kind of sex change. In fact, the sex change really is impossible. But we can say with Paul, it's not just that this is unlawful, it's also unnatural. It goes against the way God made the universe. It goes against the grain of God's creation. These things like transgenderism are acts of vandalism against the work of the divine artist. But here's the problem we have. This secular view of a natureless nature, if you will, has been elevated to a controlling principle in our politics and in our jurisprudence. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion for the Obergefell case, has put it this way. This is a quote from him from another Supreme Court ruling. The heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. He says the essence of liberty is to be able to define your own existence, your own concept of reality. So according to Justice Kennedy, there are no self-evident truths. There is just the truth the self creates. The universe has no given form. It only has the form we choose to give it. It has no transcendent meaning or purpose. It only has the meaning or purpose we create for ourselves. You can see how this sets us up for a clash. In our culture, we have two rival views of nature, two rival views of human nature, you could say, two rival views of where meaning comes from, two rival views of whether or not there is even an order or structure or purpose or design in the world. Let me take those words of Justice Kennedy and compare them to the words of George Orwell. Orwell once said, the essence of freedom is being able to claim two plus two equals four. That is, the essence of freedom is not being able to form your own reality. The essence of freedom is being able to live in accord with the form God has given His creation. Pretty soon we might find ourselves saying the essence of liberty is being able to say marriage is between a man and a woman. The essence of liberty is being able to say a man is a man and a woman is a woman. See, we find ourselves living in a culture in which more and more people, especially our elites, are more and more out of touch with reality. They are suppressing the truth more and more successfully and more and more consistently in unrighteousness. And Romans 1 explains for us exactly what's happening. Three times in this passage, Paul says, God gave them over. Verse 24, 26, and 28. God gave them over or God gave them up. In fact, that refrain is something of a structuring device for the whole passage. God gave them over. Over. 
Surely these are some of the scariest and most terrifying words in the whole Bible. What does Paul mean by them? When people fall into unlawful, unnatural ways of living, certainly these sins bring the wrath of God. But actually they also manifest the wrath of God already present, already at work. Indeed, God's wrath, we could say, even causes or provokes these sins. God is giving sinners over to their sinfulness. That's a form of judgment. It's a form of wrath. Augustine uh, captured this really well with his saying, he said, God punishes sin with sin. The worst thing God can do to a sinner is give that sinner what he wants. That's what happens when God abandons a people or gives them over. It means God lifts His restraints. He takes the leash off. He lets the sinner have his own way. C.S. Lewis said, Hell is when God says to a sinner, Thy will be done. When God gives a people up or gives a people over, that's what He's doing. The sewer of sexual sin overrunning our culture is a sign that God has given us over to our vile desires. A culture full of obscenities as ours is, is a sign that God has abandoned us. In fact, Paul here seems to put homosexuality at the end of that process of degradation and disintegration. As if homosexuality is the final frontier of rebellion. When idolatry works itself out fully and consistently, this is where it leads. A culture that gets there seems to be in the throes of death. It's at a dead end. And then Paul says in verse 32 that he is speaking not just of those who do these things, but of those who approve them. Now what has our culture just done? We've had people doing homosexuality for a long time, but now at the highest level of government, we have approved of it. And indeed, in some states in our country, those who won't approve of it are being punished and persecuted. You might say that in light of Romans 1, it, it seems like we're ripe for judgment. You might even say it sounds like judgment has already started. The wrath of God has already fallen upon us for our wickedness, our American ungodliness. Now, I'm not a prophet here. I'm not trying to predict the future. I'm not going to try to tell you how all this is going to work out. But certainly I can tell you at least this. We are in, a, as a country, as a culture, we are in a very perilous position. I think it's worth noting that the only nations to embrace same-sex marriage in the world are nations that have embraced sterility in general. The U.S. is barely an exception to this, but every other nation that has publicly and legally sanctioned same-sex marriage has a birth rate below the replacement level. Which means that these are civilizations or societies that are dying out. See, same-sex marriage, really like abortion, is a way of embracing fruitlessness and barrenness. It's a culture of death. Meanwhile, in other parts of the world, in third world nations, the developing nations, which tend to be rapidly Christianizing, they are horrified at what we've done. What we've done to marriage, what we've done to the family. The good news in the midst of all of this, of course, is that as soon as we repent, God's judgment will lift. 
Now, I need to wrap this up with several qualifiers and, 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 and addendums to what I've said here. None of this is to suggest that homosexuality is the worst of all sin. I do think there's something unique about it, uh, not only because it seems to come at the end of this downward progression, this downward spiral, but I also think there's something unique about it in our cultural moment, in our historical moment. If you look at the other catalog of uh, you know, the other sins listed in this catalog that Paul gives us in verses 29 to 31, most people would still agree that most of those things are vices. Which means none of those other sins are celebrated the way that homosexuality is. What stands out about homosexuality is here you have a sin, a vice, and it's being celebrated and promoted in the way that no other sin is being promoted. I mean, no one's arguing that children who disobey their parents should get together and, and should have some kind of special rights. Nobody's arguing that thievery should be made legal or that thieves should become a protected class. Drunkards don't hold drunk pride parades. In fact, usually they're so ashamed of their alcoholism, they would deny it rather than celebrate. They're not proud of it. It's not that way with homosexuality. There is something different about this sin. The pride that is associated with it, the way we're being forced to go along with it and give approval of it, the way people's identity gets wrapped up in it, Paul says those who practice this sin receive in themselves the penalty due their perversion. Verse 27. Perhaps Paul is talking about the health problems, the mental problems, the psychological problems that accompany the homosexual lifestyle. Whether it's that or something else, what Paul is saying is you reap what you have sown. Sin, and particularly this sin, brings its, its own misery. But let me also be quick to add this. Most of us, most of us do not know the kinds of struggles and self-loathing that people go through in the homosexual community. Usually when someone adopts a homosexual lifestyle, they have been sinned against in some grievous way. And so yes, they're victimizers, but they're also victims. Often their same-sex attraction was not chosen. And in many cases, they tried to do something about it for a long time before giving into it. And so if you, you know, as you get to know homosexuals, and I trust you will, in your neighborhoods or place of work, remember, what your homosexual friend needs is not for you to recite Romans 1 to them. You'll need to talk about that at some point. But what they need is not so much a Johnny Cash-style, God's-going-to-cut-you-down kind of message. They don't need condemnations that will come off as self-righteous. They already know intuitively what they're doing is wrong. So yeah, we're going to call sin, sin. But really, we want to reach them with the good news, with the Gospel. We've got to suffer with those who suffer. We've got to struggle with those who struggle. We've got to weep with those who weep. Maybe we need to do what Pastor Ken Wilson did and not invite them to church, but invite them to dinner. And simply get to know them as friends, as people made in the image of God. And when we do get them in the doors of the church, we need to show them that the church is a hospital that never turns away a patient who desires to be cured. And so in the church community, we need to lovingly, 
speak and embody the gospel to a group of persons who quite frankly seem to hate us and probably expect us to hate them as well. And further, let me add this. When you get to know a homosexual, do not assume that his homosexuality is his worst sin. Don't assume that his homosexuality is his worst sin because it's not. If that's all you do, if all you do is address his homosexuality, then really you're only treating symptoms. Rosaria Butterfield says it would be like plucking the, the flower part off of a dandelion, but not getting it from the root. The only way to really deal with this is to get to the root. Otherwise, you're just treating symptoms. Romans 1 shows us what the root is. Homosexuality is symptomatic of a deeper sin. And you know what the root of the homosexual sin is? It is exactly the same root as your sin. Verse 21, it is a failure to thank and glorify God. Which you could also say is the sin of idolatry or the sin of pride or the sin of unbelief. This is the mother of every other sin in your life and in everyone else's life. Unbelief is the source and root of all, our, of all of our sin. And that is as true for you as it is for those who march in the gay pride parade. And so you might have more in common with a homosexual than you thought. The antithesis in the world is not between straight and gay. It's between those who know their sin and confess it and seek to fight it and those who refuse to. If failure to thank and glorify God is the problem, what's the answer? Really, in a way, it's what you're doing right now. We gather each Lord's Day. Why? We gather each Lord's Day to give the true God thanks and glory. See, ultimately, it's not legal restrictions on homosexuality that we're after. The U.S. Constitution can't fix this problem. A law passed by Congress can't fix this problem. The law of Moses can't fix this problem. The only way to fix what is really wrong is with the grace of the Gospel. Only the grace of Christ can heal us and enable us to fulfill our true purpose. To know God rightly and to love Him and to love each other. That's the goal. And what generates that where we encounter the grace of this Gospel is in worship. In our songs, in our prayers, in our sermons, we seek to glorify God. And in the Eucharist, you know, you'll notice in the Eucharist, we give God thanks not once, but twice to remind us every week that this is man's true purpose. To fill our hearts and our mouths with thanksgiving. Praise and gratitude transform us. Praise and gratitude are our weapons in this world. We encounter the grace of God here as we gather and we give God glory and thanks. That's the only answer to the sexual confusion and social chaos breaking over us. This is the only way to restore human life and culture. When we gather, we know Christ is at work. The Christ who took wrath from heaven for us. So that now instead of wrath falling from heaven, grace can fall from heaven. Bread can fall from heaven. Living water can fall from heaven. That's all. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that Jesus came to save and restore nature, to redeem the world, to put everything right. We thank You that He came to deal with Your wrath. 
We thank You that He has turned aside Your wrath from us. That we might know Your grace and Your blessing. That we might know You as Father. That we might stop suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and give You thanks and glory. Father, we thank You for showing Yourself to us in the creation. We thank You for showing Your redeeming love to us on the cross. We thank You for preserving a people to Yourself. We pray that You would give us the strength that our knees might not buckle under the pressures of the world, but that we might stand firm on Your Word and proclaim this good news of Christ Jesus, that all men might be drawn to the Savior. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand and hold steadfast in prayer together. Let's pray. Almighty God, you reign from above with great mercy and great power, and we beseech you today to hear our prayers. Give us never-ending thankfulness for what you have done for all of us. Help us to live lives that show that true thankfulness. Strengthen our faith and make us to be the one body of Christ. We give you praise and thanks for all your goodness and tender mercies. We bless you for the love that created us and sustains us day by day. We praise you for the gift of your Son, our Savior through whom you have made your will and grace known. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, for the Holy Church, for the means of grace, for the lives of all faithful and godly people, and for the hope of the life to come. Help us to treasure in our hearts all that our Lord has done for us and enable us to show our thankfulness by our lives that are wholly given to your service. Lord, we pray for our community that we will be salt and light. We find opportunities to serve our neighbors. We pray for our neighboring churches, for St. Peter's Anglican, for St. Stephen's Episcopal, for Cahaba Heights Baptist, Mountain Brook Community Church, Cahaba Heights Methodist, Cobb Park Presbyterian, and Brookwood Baptist, and all churches with whom we have contact. We pray for the poor and neglected from our area. We pray that you would heal among us who are broken in body or spirit in our community and to turn their sorrow into joy. Grant this, Father, for the love of your Son. We pray for all of our local mayors and city councils and all of our elected officials of our communities, for our commissioners and all civil magistrates, for those in prison and for correctional institutions and for our hospitals and for all those who work in our health care. Lord, we pray today, thank you for the baptism that we will witness this morning for Coleman Hamby. Lord, we pray for all among us who are battling cancer, for Vicki Walker, for Sylvia Douglas, for Brenda Jordan, Connie Morrow, Gregory Morris, Caleb Hamby, Suzanne Shelton, Sally Smith, Marla, Martha Godwin, Ann Bullard, Amy Sanders, and Patsy Sadler, and others. Lord, we pray for health and strength for all among us who are suffering. We pray especially this morning for Sarah Scotch's father, Brad Steffler, as he recovers from a, a serious fall and resulting injuries. We thank you for the healing of Brian Motes and for Rachel Winstead, and, the, and the, pray for their continued healing. We pray for the Classical Conversations Campus that's starting up here, Lord. We pray for all of our engaged couples and our singles of the church, for those who desire to have children to be, and to be fruitful, and for all of our expectant mothers. And Lord, we thank you for all this, and we summarize all these prayers in the prayer your Son, our Savior, taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, and deliver us from evil. Tonight is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.